This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, there's a revolution going on, and there's something rotten in Setauket. My old friend Barry Josephson will be joining us from Los Angeles in a minute. He's the executive producer of the bold new series Turn on AMC, leading into Mad Men. You see it on 9 p.m. on Sunday nights. We had AMC chief Josh Sapan on the show a few months ago, and he whet my appetite for this revolutionary war tale of America's first spy ring. Well, three episodes into its first season, Turn is turning colonial-era storytelling on its head. This is not Barry Bostwick's George Washington. While the shootouts are a little slower to get going than Walter White's high-caliber gunslinging in Breaking Bad, the production team has learned a thing or two from The Walking Dead about not flinching when a redcoat thrusts a bayonet into the chest of a near-dead rebel. This is somewhat new territory for Barry, who's thrilled us with Bones on Fox and films like The Wild Wild West and Enchanted in theaters, and we'll find what it takes to bring 1776 to the small screen as never before. Then, another revolution of sorts, our show's longtime friend, Arun Chaudhry, the first official White House photographer, and now with Revolution Messaging in D.C., he'll be here to talk about Revere, a new revolution in rapid response just in time for the 2014 midterms. We'll be talking about video, technology, and politics with Arun, and we'll catch up on how President Obama's doing without his first cameraman. But first, to Setauket, Long Island we go, and the culper spiring by way of Hollywood. Barry Josephson, executive producer of Turn, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Josh. It's uh, very exciting to talk about Turn. A long time, Barry, since uh, the great domestic showdown and the man. We, 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 we could have done great things with those vehicles. I- I know you were a terrific consultant. You know, when it comes to politics, nobody knows the inside better than you. So uh, hopefully I'll figure out some other show we can do together. I'd uh, love nothing more. You got it. But I had a great consultant on this show, Alexander Rose, who wrote the book Washington Spies, was the, you know, true origin of how, you know, turn came to be. So what was the culper spiring, Barry Josephson? Okay, sir. The Culper Spy Ring was a group of, started with a group of friends from Setauket, Long Island, who, you know, understood that there were not too many people that you could trust. Um, but because they were childhood friends, they knew they could trust each other. And really, the inertia was, after Nathan Hale was hung, you know, uh, his friend from Yale, Ben Talmadge, you know, was very committed to the fact that there were no proper spies operating for the Continental Army. Um, and he eventually, through lots of you know, you know, hoops that he had to jump through, was able to convince Washington that, you know, he could create a spy ring or was already trying to put together a spy ring that could be really great information for um, Washington. And Washington himself was very concerned about the information he was receiving from scouts. None of it was good enough. None of it could be depended upon. So he really did, you know, encourage Ben Talmadge to then seek his friends, who were Caleb Brewster, Abe Woodhall, Anna Strong. And really the culprit spying started with these young people very committed to a cause. 
And yet, Barry, uh, very little understanding about what espionage even was back then. These guys sort of had to make a couple mistakes before they even got, got into the rhythm of espionage in New York City. Yeah, no, and they were, and they did make many mistakes, um, but for the most part, you know, it's interesting, like, uh, Nathan Hale, although, you know, uh, was a well-intended spy, uh, wasn't very proficient, and unfortunately was captured by John Rogers, you know, and then hung by the British in New York. Um, so after that, you know, everybody realized, okay, we need to do this better. So Washington, you know, did have some people around him that were contemplating how to do spying properly. But really, Talmadge was the one who thought, you know, if I could send somebody into New York, somebody that was a common man, you know, that then, you know, this could be a situation where somebody isn't recognized. They're not military. They're not working directly, you know, for the military. And that's where Abe Woodhull comes in, because Abe Woodhull was just a farmer um, and somebody that could get into New York City and somebody that could be in Long Island and somebody that could be in Connecticut, you know, without much excuse needed to be made. Um, And then, you know, using those friends, Caleb Brewster was a boatman. He had been a whaler. So it was very easy for him to navigate the waters in and around New York and Connecticut and, you know, Brooklyn Harbor and and have it seem reasonable. So, you know, this small group, you know, although there were mistakes here and there, they started to learn how to do it better. Secret messaging, code names, dead drops, um, all sorts of ways of connecting and communicating with each other. You know, Anna Strong hung signals on a clothing line behind her house. You know, that was a way to signal when things would be ready to be communicated. So they did become very proficient. And, you know, you have to realize they were never found out. In other words, all of the years that they operated, um, Washington sealed their identities. Um, and it was never revealed until, like, you know, the 1940s. Are we going to see Barry Bostock reprise his role as Washington in your series? No. We have a wonderful actor named Ian Khan, and he is great. Um, and the Washington that you'll see in turn is very accurate to the Washington who was, you know, the cunning general, you know, the general who, you know, cut his teeth in the French and Indian War, um, you know, who, you know, without his cunning and, and abilities, you know, I don't think the Continental Army survives. I mean, they had many setbacks. But, you know, at this turning point in 1776, where our, ep- where our show starts, you realize that, you know, through this Culper spy ring and through many other really great endeavors, he was able to, you know, um, circumvent and eventually do in the British. As much as we depict Washington on a slab of marble and think of him as this idyllic founder of the nation. This is a guy, Barry Josephson, who actually relished in in the dark arts of espionage, which was not well thought of even in the military. And you and Craig Silverstein and and, uh, Mr. Rose through his book, you really bring a darker Washington uh, to our to our consciousness, don't you? There's no question. As a matter of fact, you know, in Craig um, Silverstein, who created the show, um, is a brilliant writer. You know, he he and I both would talk about in Alex's book. You know, Washington's obsession with maps, Washington's obsession with strategy, Washington really will, willing to endeavor and use tactics that people would frown upon. 
um, you know, the idea that, you know, this spy chain could directly deliver information that would be so meaningful, uh, he was all over it. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. If you look in Alex's book and you read the letters, um, some of them, like between Washington and Woodhall, between Washington and Talmadge, communications, letters, you realize, you know, this was, you know, something that he was fascinated with. Um, so that's why Alex's book was, you know, eye-opening for us all. Well, let's begin with uh, with our young friend Abe Woodhull, the unassuming father of, of one uh, happily married or seeming so in the very first scenes of Turn on AMC, played by Jamie Bell in the pilot. Hi, Abraham Woodhull. Do sincerely and faithfully promise and swear that I will bear true allegiance to His Majesty King George III. And that with heart and hands, life and goods, will maintain and defend His Majesty's government. Get ready. Present. And the laws of the province of New York. Against all traitorous conspiracies and attempts shall be made against his person, crown, or dignity. Barry Josephson, Abe Woodhull sounds like a pretty committed Tory in that uh, oath that he's made to give in Setauket. Well, by the end of that episode, he is committed, um, and then in a subsequent episode, he is concerned and perhaps not as committed. Um, you know, in episode two, you really learn that uh, he's concerned about being in. Uh, episode three deals with um, some of the same qualms, because, you know, uh, he is, um, his father's a judge magistrate, and, and the portrayal that we've given his father and we've given his family, you know, is... Um, that they were um, Tories. And, you know, I think the thing that's interesting is that he soon becomes committed to that side when he sees enough and he's been influenced by Ben and by Caleb. Um, and he wants to protect what's meaningful to him. And one of those things is Anna and his family. Um, so, you know, he does go through lots of changes in our show. Um, you know, he's Samuel Culper, Culper Sr., named by Washington. Um, and the Samuels after um, Ben's uh, brother. So uh, it's, it's really interesting. You know, the character for us, is the way into the show, and that character is not fully committed until, you know, he's had some experience spying. So, Craig Silverstein, Rose, yourself, you live in the here and now. Craig wrote for Bones. He wrote uh, Nikita. How do, you, how do you make that transition to writing some of that dialogue that is 240 years old and getting into the way both colonials and British spoke back in Setauket in 1776? 
Well, you learn from the language. I mean, you learn from the language that when you read the letters, you know, and you hear the King's English, the Queen's English being spoken, you know um, you're going to have to um, stick to that. And also, you know, uh, at that time, at the, in that period, you know, you have so many different people who were our early settlers, you know, Dutch, Irish, British, you know, and so you have to French, you have to, you have to German, you have to really realize that, you know, the language was such a big part of that period. So although everybody's trying to speak English, everybody's speaking, you know, the older version of English and also, you know, with their accents being so strong. So, you know, we did our best to be very true to that. And I think Craig, Craig really studied carefully, you know, phraseology of the time, you know, idioms, uh, you know, knowing what, you know, slang was at the time. Um, we tried really to be true to that. And if we were ever going to use a word, you know, we would go back and look and make sure that that was a proper word to be used at that time, um, whether it be military or just, you know, the common farmer. Obviously, Barry, uh, Barry, uh, as a business matter, AMC has now lost Breaking Bad, uh, a, a sequel to come. It's in the final season of Mad Men, both series based in the here and now. Language is very easy. How were you able to sell Turn to the buyers at AMC? You know, um, when Craig and I first introduced it, is we, there was an executive, Susie Fitzgerald, who really, I think, rose to the occasion, really recognizing what the story was about. Um, and the creative executives there, Susie, Ben, Erica, Brian, they really all weighed in with us about, you know, you know what was an AMC show and what was doing well for them. And, you know, we, we watched all the shows and we, we were very knowledgeable about it. I think the really smart thing was to experience the show through Ben's eyes. I think that was the key for AMC. You wanted to have a guy who you knew was compromised, you know, who had real weight on his shoulders, um, not the obvious hero. Um, and I think that's what's so fascinating when you really look at those other characters, you know, and obviously I'm a huge Breaking Bad fan. I mean, uh, I even interviewed Vince Gilligan at a film festival a year ago, and it was just a great experience for me to sort of learn about the origins of that show. So the origins for us are really seeing the show through Abe Woodhull's eyes, somebody who had to be convinced, you know, that this was the right thing to do. Um, because Talmadge himself starts as such a, a dyed-in-the-wool patriot, there's no, there's no journey that he really needs to take to, to get comfortable with this. Correct. Absolutely. He is a dyed-in-the-wool patriot. Um, but again, you know, very smart, spoke multiple languages, Yale graduate, um, and, and yes, a complete patriot. Um, and, you know, none of them liked what was happening at Setauket. Setauket had been, you know, a bastion, a hold. You know, Brit the British took over that town in Long Island to have a foothold in Long Island. And, you know, Major Hewlett, who was the British commander in Setauket, you know, had defiled their entire town. I mean, they, he uprooted the graves, he, you know, gravestones, he took over the church and made it their battleground. He made it their headquarters. Um, so for those who were, you know, uh, patriots or leaning that way, they found the British, you know, uh, to be abhorrent. Uh, but at the time, you know, it, it's such a mixed, you know, uh, the, the 
the, the dilemma for everybody is so different because some people just thought this will always be, you know, how the country will be ruled. It will always be under the crown. Um, it'll be always under the king. So there were people who were terrified to, you know, be patriots or to claim that they were patriots. So I think that's where we find Abe. We find Abe in a situation where, you know, it's very, very dangerous for him to have these leanings and to operate as a spy. And in a show, Barry Josephson, executive producer of Turn, uh, you you have to create this uh, dramatic entourage that includes not only heroes of Talmadge and Woodhull, but also wonderfully drawn villains. From episode two, Who by Fire, I want to hear a little bit of our good friend Captain Simcoe describing his background. You must understand, I was not born in England. Never set foot on her, actually. I was raised in India. My father was a surgeon at Fort William. I watched him bring medicine to the poor mongrels of Bengali. And then when I was ten, I watched him suffocate in the black hole of Calcutta, smothered alive, along with 40 other Englishmen in a cell that was designed to hold three. My uh, congratulations to Craig and, and uh, also Samuel Roken for playing that role so wonderfully. Yeah, Samuel's brilliant. Um, he was somebody that we cast out of New York, and he is uh, just a wonderful antagonist villain um, and plays significantly throughout the series. Um, and he is a great challenge to Abe, especially, um, because he is stationed under Major Hewlett in Setauket. Um, and he has staggering suspicions about um, all of the people in Setauket. Um, and that comes to bear in later episodes. Um, in the episode that you're referring to in episode two, you know, he's been captured. Um, it's a remarkable experience. Cause Treated you harshly by the colonials. I mean, more so than a, an officer would ever uh, uh, impose on another officer. Yes, because I think, you know, Ben Talmadge realizes he only has a short window to get information out of him. Because, the again, you know, the Continental Army at that time was not, you know, uh, interrogating people the way that Ben was trying to interrogate Rukin, uh, um, Simcoe. And uh, it's always uh, so great to turn on the TV and see redcoats uh, properly depicted in, in all of their uh, uh, 18th century regalia. This show is centered uh, in Setauket, Long Island, with these wonderful scenes in New York City, aided by digital effects and green screen. But uh, Virginia was really the home for this production, wasn't it? Yes, we use Virginia because we learned a lot about Lincoln being shot there and John Adams. Um, and there are so many in and around Richmond, there are so many older buildings, older homes, older streets. It made it very easy production-wise for us to do that. That said, you know, everything that is old is, you know, left with lots of modern around it. So we had to do lots of green screen and set extensions to make the period work, uh, as was done for that movie and for John Adams, the series. I think we did a great job. I'm very proud of the team that we had working and, you know, Look Effects, who does our post-production visual effects, because we really tried to bring 1776 and that time alive, you know? One amazing digital moment uh, comes, I think, when uh, Abe and his dad are moving toward New York City for uh, a meeting with 
um, some of the locals, and you see the rowboat uh, making its way toward New York Island, what we know as Lower Manhattan, and there's this amazing vista. Let's hear a little bit from episode three as Abe Woodhall and his father are uh, making an acquaintance of someone they know in New York. Oh, my, what an handsome pair of gentlemen. Is that your son? How's about I introduce him to my daughter for a little family get-together? Maybe later. We'll be here, darling. Maybe later. <laughs> Woodhull! Judge Woodhull! I didn't know your contract was military. They're the best kind of contract to have. Magistrates. <laughs> You're a sight for sore eyes and a salivating palate. <laughs> Brought the bacon, have we? Only my son, Abraham, my new business representative. Does that mean we won't be trading directly anymore? Matters at home increasingly require my attention, but you can trust my son in all of my affairs. Yes. But can I trust him in mine? Barry Josephson, that's Kevin McNally as Richard Woodhull. And one of the themes throughout this series' turn is that the American Revolution was not just American versus British. It was father versus son, brother versus brother. You never knew exactly where people stood, do you? No, and that that's true, and that's why you don't know who you can trust, which brings us back to the basis of the show. You know, why did these people trust each other? They grew up together. Um, they were all of the same generation, and although Abe and Anna both needed some convincing, you know, Ben and Caleb were completely committed um, to be patriots and just, you know, really wanted to see their town of Setauket be the flourishing place that they grew up in. Um, um, you know, so so yes, I mean, it, it is a period of time where their you know allegiances are so divided, um, and and there's a lot of fear. So it was it really required espionage to sort of get Washington the information that he needed. Um, that scene that you just played, you know, is when they arrive in New York Harbor, and I think that's one of the really great you know. Uh, special effects scenes that uh, we did for that episode. Michael Taylor wrote that episode, and Caroline Hanania, our production designer, did a brilliant job of research of what a ferry looked like at that time and what New York Harbor looked like at that time. And Craig had tremendous detail from research he had done, you know, about early New York. It's, I think, a very special moment in the episode. Speaking of New York, Barry Josephson, you grew up in the Upper East Side. Your uh, your parents were in the textile business, and uh, eventually you made it to American University. How did you go from sort of where you were headed, perhaps for a law degree, to California? Well, I will tell you one person who had a great hand in that, and that's my interviewer right now, because uh, I think, you know, you, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, yeah, when I when when we met, uh, I thought you know it's just very interesting. You were very encouraging about the work that I was doing. Uh, I had always wanted to go and be a lawyer. Um, I ditched it to go work in the music business and to go work in the film and television business. And right at the time I met you, I was starting to think about should I stay in this? Should I go back? And uh, you know it was such a good experience talking to you about you know you know your perceptions of the things that I was doing and my perception of what you had done. I really I really think that you know. Uh, I, I, I first, you know, my first love was film and television, even as a kid growing up. And I think what happened when I graduated college, I recognized, you know what, I need some time to consider what my future is going to be. I can't jump right into law school. I can't jump right onto a path. 
And I made the decision to, you know, go to work in the music business and then the film and television business, and I never really looked back, except for that one moment when you and I were <laughs> contemplating working together. I can't imagine that, Barry. I mean, when I think of... Uh I was so excited when I saw that uh, Wild Wild West came out, uh, and we'll play a little clip from that, but uh, it seems like you and I have, have come from similar paths because some of these images of, of American history in the Old West uh, we share so deeply. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Kevin Klein and, uh, and in Wild Wild West. Gordon, what's your plan for getting this thing off my neck? Excuse me? That's what you're here for. You're the master of this mechanical stuff. Oh, I see. Now I'm the master of this mechanical stuff. As opposed to five minutes ago when I was calmly and coolly trying to find an intelligent solution to this very problem. But then something happened. Someone who will remain nameless. Jim West! Decided to jump over the wire, thereby providing us with that exhilarating romp through the cornfield and that death-defying leap into the abysmal muck and here we stand, while that demented maniac is hurtling towards our president on our one and only mode of transportation, with Rita as his prisoner, armed with God knows what machinery of mass destruction, with the simple intention of overturning our government and taking over the country. Look, Gordon, I think you need to calm down. Barry Josephson, in uh, 15 years, uh, what have you learned in terms of depicting uh, old American history? You don't actually need the robots in high tech, do you? No, I <laughs> That's Will Smith as Jim, as Jim West. Yeah, I think if there was any, I think if there was any flaw to that movie, he was building that giant robotic um, spider because I think that was a little bit of a stretch. You know, tone is an important thing in movies. Um, and when when I was a studio executive, when we made Men in Black, I felt like, well, you know, we had a great excuse. The aliens helped us with technology, so we could basically get away with anything. Um, you know, I learned a lot from, from that experience. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, when I made the movie Enchanted, uh, it was hard to imagine, you know, a, a fairy tale character, an animated character coming to life. But when I really look at that movie and the tone of that movie, I think that it worked very well because I think that transition was great. And when I look at Turn, I think, you know, you have to be accurate. You have to be true to history. You have to know what gun was used at that period, what gun was used for, for a duel, how long does it take to reload a cannon and a gun, what is the wardrobe, and so on. We had great consultants on our show, our prop people and so on. You know, uh, Donna Sikowska, our wardrobe designer, just fantastic. I mean, I really look at look at every episode we've produced, and I looked at the work that she did, you know, whether it was a militiaman or somebody in a fancy dress, you know, she really researched the period, understood what everything needed to look like, and, you know, I'm very proud of the work that's in turn. You've had 10 seasons of Bones on Fox in which you, you follow the procedural rules uh, significantly more closely, and in turn, you know, I, I as a... Uh, uh, every episode Walking Dead fan, you know, I, I don't shirk away it anymore from taking an axe to someone's head, but do you feel liberated in this golden age of television and through the cable tentpole uh, networks like AMC that, look, if the direction is to send someone out with a bayonet to make sure the colonials are dead, I'm not going to flinch at all through what that direction requires me to do. Well, 
I think it's I think it's it's a great golden era of television right now. Um, I I revere what Bones is, you know, um, and I and I think you know I watch The Good Wife and I watch CSI and I watch Bones and I love what network television can be. I also love that there's cable television where you can do a different kind of subject matter um, and that you can have you know that kind of language and or level of violence and so on. Because look, people go. You know, whether they're reading a novel or they're going to the movies, they go for so many varied kinds of entertainment. So I think the fact that the landscape exists now where there is an AMC and there is an FX and there is a Netflix, you know, I think that the the ability to, you know, portray so many different kinds of stories. And the fact, you know, what's remarkable about AMC is their ability to support you, you know, that they will back a vision, that they backed Vince Gilligan, you know, that they let Breaking Bad just be what it was, what he conceived, you know, Sony Studios, the same thing. I think in this case, with Turn, it's just so remarkable to see, you know, uh, a network just so engage and say, you know, we back your vision. I, I look at that, too, on The Walking Dead, you know, that show is so massively successful, and I think for good reason. I think that they have just backed the visionary people behind that show. Well, I don't want to let, let you go, Barry, without turning it from sort of the darkness of Setauket. And I will uh, tell viewers, if you tune in on uh, Sunday night for episode four, this show, you got to pay attention because the dialogue is, is as Barry said, uh, the Queen's English. Uh, the, the settings are sometimes, you know, it, just a, a single candle uh, lighting up a, a cabin. So you got to pay a lot of attention. But the movie that so many, a, a real generation associates with Barry Josephson, of course, is Enchanted with Amy Adams and Patrick Dempsey. I want to hear just one scene of that wonderful movie and have you share with us, I guess there's a, a new movie, new Enchanted in the works. You know, if it did work out and you decided to stay in New York, I'd like to help. Well, that's very kind of you, Robert. But Edward is coming for me. But what if he doesn't? Why do you keep saying that? Because I deal with this every day. If a relationship has issues at the beginning, it doesn't get any better. He is coming. Giselle, I don't think so. No. Yes! I have to disagree. No. No? No. Is that the only word that you know? No. No. Oh, yeah. No. 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 Oh, no. I mean no. Oh, no. 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 Over and over again. Every word out of your mouth is no. It just it makes me so. Oh, sometimes you make me so. I make you so what? You make me so. So. Angry. <laughs> I'm angry. Barry Justison, are Amy Adams and Patrick Dempsey signed up for the sequel? Uh, let me just say this. We're working on a sequel right now, and I, you know, I listen to that clip, and I think James Marsden, Idina Menzel, uh, Patrick Dempsey, you know, Susan Sarandon, you know, it, it, you know and, and mostly just what Amy Adams brought to Giselle, what that movie was. It's just, it was such a great experience, you know, and it would be a shame not to uh, have that experience again. There's a great sequel for that movie. Um, we're definitely in process of working on it, and, you know, I'm definitely, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited with the possibility of what it can be. So my hope is uh, all those people come back to reprise their roles. Barry Justice, and the only thing I'd like you to do other than to give us uh, more seasons of Bones and another couple seasons of uh, Turn and maybe an Enchanted 2 is maybe throw your hat into the ring for Henry Waxman's seat of California 33. There's already 17 people running. Why not Josephson? 
Yeah, I saw that. Isn't uh, is Marion Williamson running as well? That's right. Yeah, no, that's going to be quite. Uh, I I think not since uh, Mr. Schwarzenegger or Governor Schwarzenegger ran for uh, governor has there been anything as entertaining as what that's going to be. I'm just going to sit back and watch that. I think there's a very good article in the New York Times uh, magazine coming up about that. I um, I'm excited to see what that race brings. Yeah, <laughs> my buddy. My buddy Mark Leibovich has that piece coming out in the Sunday paper. You can all you can read it online already. Uh, Barry Josephson, executive producer of Turn and so much other great entertainment. My old friend from many years. Uh, catch episode four Sunday night on AMC at nine o'clock, just before Mad Men. Barry, so much thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks, my friend. Really appreciate it, Josh. Take care. When we come back, our old friend Arun Chaudhry, partner at Revolution Messaging. This is POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. We're back now at Paul the Optics, Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. I'm Josh King, joined by our old friend of the show, Arun Chaudhry, the first official White House videographer, author of First Cameraman, and as I said before the break, a partner at Revolution Messaging, one of the most creative uh, video shops and messaging shops in Washington, D.C., out this week with a major announcement. Welcome a run to the show. Thanks. I would also add on to my list of things I do that I'm a, a friend of the show. Can we, we put that on there? We love having friends of the show. And uh, and you've been with us since almost our inception. And, and you were one of the first guys from the... You were the first guy, Arun, to come from the White House while I think you were still in your role and tell us about what you're doing, or maybe it was right afterwards. So we've, over time, had uh, Pfeiffer and Palmieri and other people, but you were the first person to sort of share the, the view polyoptically from the White House, and it gave us a huge amount of insight. Uh, well, thanks. And I hopefully, hopefully this is sort of will shed some insight on some of the other stuff that, you know, that happens in, in political messaging that's more below the surface. You know, because uh, here at Rev, we're super excited that we're rolling out uh, our revealed, uh, sorry, our Revere tools uh, named, of course, after Paul Revere. And, uh, you know, because why should only one side be owning all the patriot imagery if we're talking about polyoptics, right? Don't you find it odd that uh, seemingly a lot of patriotic imagery is surrendered by progressives to conservatives, seemingly uh, on a I regular do, basis. I, exactly, and the whole Tea Party motif is is a, of one side and not the other. Um, and I will compliment you greatly, Arun, on your overall Rev messaging website design, which has this th- these great touches that uh, sort of harken back to colonial era styling. What was behind all that? Oh, I think it was something that everyone at the company, especially our founder, Scott, really felt was an important part of what we do to bake into the DNA of the company, the idea of revolution, of changing the way things are done uh, in the way that this always happened in this country, which is, you know, um, usually holistic, forceful and uh, and 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 progressive. Uh, and, and and so if you want to know what we're unrolling now, it's a it's a suite of tools. There's five of them that uh, then all put data in and it's sort of uh, our way of trying to break down the kind of new data driven politics and make that ability accessible to smaller campaigns uh, in in the progressive sphere. Uh, So in layman's terms, 
<laughs> in layman's terms, we're trying to make sure that when you're advertising, you are targeting smartly, you're using the proper voting exchanges, that you are getting all the registered information that you need. Uh, we want all of your calling tools to be as a seamless experience as drunkdial.com. If you remember, that was our uh, response in uh, during the government shutdown. And I think a lot of people responded positively to the humor, but actually a lot of folks are very pleasantly surprised at how great the voice interactive experience was in making these phone calls. Uh, and I have to admit that I made a lot of those phone calls. And so uh, oftentimes people who really wanted to make them may have had to wait. And I apologize for that. Well, Arun Chaudhry, 1775, uh, a silversmith named Paul Revere uh, camped out on the banks of Charlestown, uh, looking back toward Boston and the Old North Church and uh, looked for a beacon, whether there would be one light or two from the church to, to tell us whether the British would be coming to Lexington and Concord, one if by land, two if by sea. And then he got in his faithful steed and rode through the night toward Lexington and Concord, echoing those famous uh, that famous phrase, the British are coming. Let's hear from Revolution Messaging, uh, the video that takes a new take on what Revere might be doing if that same circumstance happened today. Stop running a revolution on yesterday's technology. Oh, hey, hey, hey. Yeah, Paul here. Yeah, they're coming. Uh, do the homepage takeover of the London Daily. Banners, um, pre-roll, yeah, do the whole nine. The Revere Suite is a new revolution in rapid response. Visit RevereHQ.com for more information. One if by mobile, two if by desktop. Or whatever the fuck that saying is. This is just sort of, you know, in a way, us showing in action, especially from my shop, which is a creative shop, uh, just showing our theories in action, which is what better way to get people to pay attention to something than humor. And that's at the heart of this whole enterprise, is that there is so much on TV, in the digital space, everywhere, so much clutter, so much political clutter, especially, that getting a message through is increasingly difficult and damn near impossible these days. And so uh, I think by using both smart technology, but also elements like being quick, being funny, being smart, uh, you can really still penetrate areas and get through to the people who are looking for those messages. Arun Chaudhry, we um, talking in the first half hour with Barry Josephson, executive producer of Turn and on AMC, and we clearly are in this golden age of television in terms of scripted drama and quality that comes through places like HBO, AMC, Netflix with House of Cards, etc., is there an optimistic note to ring here in the political advertising space that uh, some of the quality and cinema t- cinemagraphic uh, approach and storytelling and, as you say, humor is uh, coming back or at least rising to a new level? I think that's absolutely correct. I think when you're looking at the diminishing returns from especially television political ads, you can see that the only people who are really pushing these as being an effective tool anymore are the people who make money making them. You know, so uh, obviously because you know how politics works and when you put a television ad up, you get this big ad buy and you take a percentage and sort of that's how people in politics make their money is on television. But now you have this new culture of people who try to get that attention instead of by blanketing a huge television media market by making something that's creative, inspired, something that actually makes people seek it out on the Internet rather than being sought out on television. And so you have to be smart. You have to be funny. Uh, And I think that there is a big bright note in in a lot of areas. I think that we'll see better, more intelligent work in the political media sphere coming up simply because the audiences will demand it. And I think we'll see some more interesting, innovative things. Like uh, I would really be excited to explore more fiction work uh, when trying to explain political, political ideas. I think that there are a lot of new venues where people watch 
quote-unquote television online and that webisodes about your particular topic or uh, project could actually be the best way to explain them. And, you know, it's I don't think this is a monopoly only for uh, for the Democrats, because, you know, even in in Arkansas, where Mark Pryor is fighting for his life against uh, Representative Cotton, I, I've seen a recent ad from Cotton in which, uh, you know, he plays against the the prior uh, comment that his military service didn't qualify him to run for Senate. I want to hear that ad because I was surprised and impressed that a Republican had such humor in uh, in their spot. Senator Pryor says my military service gives me, quote, a sense of entitlement. So I brought in an expert. Did I say at ease, Cotton? I met Sergeant Norton at basic training. It's still Drill Sergeant Norton, Cotton, at ease. Drill Sergeant Norton taught me how to be a soldier. Accountability, humility, and putting the unit before yourself. That training stuck. It better have. Now what, Cotton? Permission to speak? Speak, Cotton. I'm Tom Cotton. I approve this message. You're on thin ice, Cotton. Arun Chaudhry, making a little fun of yourself. Tom Cotton, how do you rate that ad? Uh, that's a great ad uh, because it's funny, but more importantly, when you're talking about humor and politics, the main thing is that the joke itself has to be the message. And I think that that's done you know, unevenly by different folks working in this sphere. Uh, oftentimes, if you're just trying to rob someone of their dignity, even in a self-deprecating way, uh, you know, it's just sort of not about the actual topic. But if the joke if the message is the joke, like in this case, it's like absurd to question his military service and the absurdity of that is the humor. Um, if you're working in spaces where people have strong feelings like abortion, if you can make the joke about the actual message, there's almost no limit to what you can do and what people will accept and not be offended by and not be upset by because it's in these moments of humor that very big ideas can be explained in very small ones. Remind our listeners, Arun, uh, that from the perspective of a political ad man, you come from a s- sort of cinematic training, and wh- where where you eventually, how you eventually made it to the Obama for President campaign in two thousand seven. Well, you know, I think the much more normal route in, and I was a you know uh, NYU film school uh, professor before I joined the Obama campaign, and was not really on anyone's list to come in because it's a very more normal path to come in from journalism, and I think that a lot of the aesthetics of journalism, the anonymity, uh, the sort of medium shots, end up becoming a lot of what political advertising is because they end up dominating the sphere and they end up doing a lot of this work. Uh, there really isn't that many roots in from art school, you know, uh, into into political ad work. And so I, I feel like, uh, you know, my very formal training at NYU, which is mostly in fiction and not in documentary, uh, really serves me well when I'm tr- when I'm breaking down what these ass- assignments are. I find myself you know, listening to things that my professor said in the back of my head and sort of doing that kind of work, thinking about obstacles and opportunities, thinking about moments before and inciting incidents and, you know, less about brand cohesion and marketing and all the sort of new popular words that get thrown around in our industry. Major story, Arun Chaudhry, that came out this week, uh, uh, disappointing to many, uh, was the new gun law signed into law by Georgia Governor Nathan Deal. The guns uh, everywhere, Bill. Guns, the guns everywhere. Uh, the uh, the group Americans for Responsible Solutions uh, that was founded by Gabby Giffords called it the most extreme gun bill in America. And I want to hear, hear a little bit of a video that you made with uh, Congresswoman Giffords' husband, Mark Kelly, as he went out to try and uh, get a, a new handgun for himself. Uh, I'm going to go to the gun store and buy a gun today. Okay. Because I want to demonstrate to everybody that will be watching 
how easy it is to get a universal background check. Background checks. Going to buy a gun. Here in the state of Arizona, which requires a driver's license and a background check, does not require the U.S. mail. It takes about five minutes. So today we're going to demonstrate um, what the whole process is and how relatively simple it is. This will not be my only gun. Uh, I've got a 9mm Ruger, a hunting rifle, a shotgun, a 25 semi-automatic pistol, very small. Arun Chaudhry, you made that with uh, Captain Mark Kelly in Arizona. Uh, mm -hmm. Also a little humor in that, wasn't there? Oh, absolutely. And uh, that just, I think, comes out because that's exactly who Mark is. He's just a very, very funny, warm, normal guy uh, who happens to fly space shuttles. I guess that's a little unusual. Uh, but, you know, it's the classic political cliche when you're explaining you're losing. So if we had a video, you know, even with Mark and Gabby, as engaging as they are, explaining to people that background check is not a big deal, it does not take a long time, uh, it is probably less time than you wait in line at Harris Teeter, at least in Noma, like this is, you know, this is what it is. Uh, but instead, we were able to, you know, use the techniques that we like to use just to show people how it happened. So in real time, you can see that, oh my gosh, this did not impact Mark's afternoon at all. He really wanted to buy a forty-five uh, pistol, and he left the store with a forty-five pistol. And and yet uh, and yet for all of their work over the past uh, several years since uh, Gabby Giffords was so severely wounded, you still have things like this week in Georgia. Uh, where 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 does this go next, and how does how do tools like Revolution Messaging have and offer uh, do any anything more to address this? Uh, I think we have to continue to try to show people uh, that there are common sense solutions to gun violence. Uh, I think that. Something that's not very good is that in this space, it's kind of broken down into anti-gun and pro-gun. And so I think that's why you see a lot of Americans Responsible Solutions videos and other work um, sort of not addressing that as the issue. The issue Mark Kelly clearly not anti-gun right, based you know, on his, uh, the had, armory that he maintains. He owns several, yes. you know, uh, And to be able to talk to actual gun owners in a reasonable and casual tone of voice uh, is sort of only possible with YouTube videos. These things never fly as, as television ads. There's no way to kind of get that kind of thing on the air. And so I think there is this new opportunity with this new space to be able to have a conversation with responsible gun owners about simple things that people can do uh, to, to increase safety. And I think you'll see some of the other groups who aren't engaged in that conversation, especially online, who are doing a more traditional political uh, media approach become more marginalized in this space as they don't talk to people where they are at and in the way that they want to be talked to. Arun, changing gears, we're now um, almost halfway through the sixth year of the Obama presidency. And when I worked in the Clinton White House from day one, you know, I started counting uh, counting the years on sort of the annual things that happened that uh, happened like clockwork, like the pardoning of the Thanksgiving turkey mm -hmm. or the one, yeah. uh, the obligatory trip to the G8. Uh, the president uh, this week had uh, yet another uh, Easter egg roll on the South Lawn, uh, preceded by um, celebrations of Easter and Passover. And I want to hear a little bit of his message uh, message to the people about these holidays and have you reflect based on the uh, pr pretty much about the journey that he has come and you've taken as well. For millions of Americans, this time of year holds great meaning. 
Earlier this week, we hosted a Passover Seder at the White House and joined Jewish families around the world in their retellings of the story of the Exodus and the victory of faith over oppression. And this Sunday, Michelle, Malia, Sasha, and I will join our fellow Christians around the world in celebrating the resurrection of Christ, the salvation he offered the world, and the hope that comes with the Easter season. These holy days have their roots in miracles that took place long ago, and yet they still inspire us, guide us, and strengthen us today. They remind us of our responsibilities to God, and as God's children, our responsibilities to one another. A run at the risk of being a little crass, it's almost like Groundhog Day when you have to do these annual statements. But you were on the very limited invite list to come back to the White House to participate in the Passover Seder. What was it like going through the gates again? Oh, you know, it's always great to be back, and especially in a capacity where you're not stressed out about things. You know, I would say the first or second time I came back and people like, you know, weren't looping you in on things and talking quietly about stuff they didn't want you to know about kind of upset me. Uh, and But, you know, by this time when I come in for something that's, you know, really a fun family event like the Seder, I'm sort of glad that business gets conducted, you know, a little bit uh, out of out of the eyes of of us, you know, and it is amazing, you know, saying it seems like a ritual, the same thing over and over again. I think that's how it feels with the public events, right? For me, uh, it was St. Patrick's Day where I would really feel the weight of the years and I'd be like, we're doing this again and things green again and here it is again. Um, The Seder is really not like that because it's not a public event. It's not a political event. It is very much like a family Seder where you all show up regardless of what you've been doing and what you're up to and what your present circumstances are and you do a lot of the same things you do every year and, and I know it's a huge treat for all of us who get to go. And I think it's something that the president really finds uh, really finds fun as, as an event where he gets together with some of his old staff. But also it is something that he does tie into the present tense, into what's happening in the presidency, into the politics of the day. You know, our first Seder when we organized it was, was on the campaign trail. And there were a lot of obvious parallels between, you know, what was happening and the, uh, and the struggles we were having. And, you know, you can kind of work that up into a narrative froth. But I think really some of the, some of the best conversations that we'll have are around thing, issues like modern civil rights in America uh, versus, you know, what was happening in ancient Egypt. And we do actually, as part of our, our, uh, our Seder, read the Emancipation Proclamation exactly the same way that folks read the Haggadah going around and everyone taking a paragraph. And I think reflecting on how important the messages of these holidays are to what is practically happening on the ground is something that the president uh, enjoys doing and is also, I think, very well informed by. Looking at the uh, guest list for that Seder seemed very much like old home week 2007. How d- how did it st- how did some of the people who had been long gone from the White House strike you in terms of how they've their lives have progressed since they left the White House and and the Obama orbit? Well, you know the 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 most the two that are most striking are my. Uh, conspirators in the formation of the of the Seder, which is uh, Eric Lesser and Herbie Ziskind, and they've both sort of gone in in very interesting directions that I think tells a lot about you know young Obama folks. Uh, Herbie is now Ariana Huffington's uh, chief of staff, and he is sort of keeping the trains running on time over there, which is something he cut his teeth doing with the vice president, which I imagine is sort of very similar in a lot of ways. And uh, Eric Lesser is of course running for state senate in Massachusetts. I wish I knew the district to help him plug it, but uh, he is running and, uh, you know, he calls for money and other things. And it's sort of funny to watch the youngest generation uh, of Obama folks begin to, and it sounds condescending because I'm only, you know, eight or 10 years older than these folks, but really sort of grow up and find these careers and, and take the same passion that they brought to the White House and put it out into the places that they're from. And how sort of 
fresh and energized does President Obama seem after now, what, five and a half, six and a half years? What are we? How many years through are we? Um, How does he seem as he looks toward sort of the last 25 percent of his presidency? You know, it seems like at some point in our conversations, whenever I come on the show, we have to address the topic of the fact is the president is a very calm guy. He actually takes things as they come. He's got a lot on his plate, a lot that's obviously super worrying, some things in the works that are really exciting. And I think that really consumes him more than thinking about what's going to happen, you know, in late January 2017. Um. So this week, Arun Chaudhry, he is uh, he's finally making the trip to Asia that was canceled, I think, three times, mostly because I believe of domestic politics going. He's uh, going to Japan, Korea, Philippines, Malaysia. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a good one. Great a, trip. A pretty good trip, putting uh, Air, Th- Air Force One through its paces. Uh, the first stop in Japan, he's with uh, Prime Minister Abe and going to a, a very exclusive sushi restaurant that I think can only seat 10. And we saw some video of him walking out of the restaurant with the Prime Minister. And then uh, one of these photo ops with Asimo, the dancing robot. Uh are you still as focused on sort of the action that might appear in the next installment of West Wing Week? You know, I, I do keep up with West Wing Week, and uh, I obviously keep up with, the, with what the president's up to. But because of the job I'm doing at Revolution, I'm mostly focused on, on the domestic politics. And so uh, when the president takes off for a big trip, I almost breathe a sigh of relief and I stop reading the pool reports and I let him do his thing. Uh, so I'm really a civilian. Uh, in this. And so I'm sure you've been exhaustively looking at all the photos coming out. Uh, but I can say I just hear little bits and bobs in between uh, things about 2014 and you know speculation about the Clinton grandbaby and stuff. So it, it's funny because what has cut through to me, what has uh, what I've gotten by osmosis is what you're saying. It's the robot. It's uh, eating sushi with the prime minister. And, you know, I did catch on the BBC while I was in the tub listening to the radio that uh, there's obviously a lot of going on with territorial disputes that China between China and Japan. And we obviously are allies uh, of Japan. We want to make sure people know. And that sort of to me was at like a two. Like I just sort of heard that vaguely. But the stuff with the robot and the stuff with the sushi was something that I was very aware of. And so these moments, you know, we laugh them off, but it is what cuts through to folks who aren't paying attention. You mean our attention is not as focused as it should be on Chinese waters, territorial territorial disputes? Yeah, I think people (laughs) just aren't really reading their mailers on it. Um, What work uh, is ahead for revolution messaging as we head toward the 2014 midterms and then thinking about uh, would you ever suit up again to do uh, official videographer for a 2016 candidate? Uh, you know, I- I'm not sure. Uh, it's been really great seeing seeing folks working out there. And I've worked with Martin O'Malley's pack a bit, uh, which is, you know, obviously something that's an exploratory thing. And so it's sort of fun seeing that process in, in, in a different way. Uh, but, uh, you know, 2016 is a long way from now. And we are definitely focused on on 2014 and not just for uh, our clients and making sure that that we're getting their messages out there. But I think also in making sure that some of those smaller campaigns that are out there have a set of tools, which is what we're hoping Revere is, that they can really enter into the technological space and compete with much larger campaigns. You know, it's these big companies that have big data lists, big, 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 that are able to sort of make all these things work and scale. And the things that can work in a billion-dollar presidential campaign are often not accessible to a congressional race that may actually be being run with tens of thousands of dollars, especially by someone who's not an incumbent, especially by somebody who's an exciting kind of candidate who we all dream of working for. And so really being able to be more open with uh, the data that the progressive side has and, and 
revealing it in a smart way. I, I think we're really excited to see how that transforms 2014. People want to get hold of the new suite of tools under the Revere banner through Revolutionary Messaging, Re- Revolution Messaging. Arun Chaudhry, what do they do? They go to revereHQ.com, or you can always go to revolution, revolutionmessaging.com. Well, uh, my old friend Arun Chaudhry, partner at Revolution Messaging. And friend the, of the show. And friend of the show. Uh, big uh, rollout party tonight for Revere. Congratulations. And uh, will you come back again and see us soon? Yeah, really soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Arun. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.